When was the last time you were troubled? Have you, have you made it through a day without being troubled? How about a week? Whether you're a, a glass half empty or a glass half full kind of person, I am, I think I'm 100% certain that you have experienced the feeling of being troubled before, being unsettled, uncertain, and probably even recently. This is a universal experience in our world full of troubles. There is no avoiding conflict or toil in this life. But God's Word has much to say to us about what, what to do when we find ourselves troubled. And we'll consider this as we study Psalm 16 this morning. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles, open your Bibles to Psalm 16. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 453. 453. Over the next several weeks, we're going to study a few psalms. Psalms are, are poems, songs, and prayers from the ancient people of God. And it's my prayer that these ancient songs, written to show us what it means to live with faith and hope in the promises of God, will encourage and strengthen your joy in Jesus Christ. And as we begin our study of these psalms, we need to remember and keep in mind what Jesus himself has said about the psalms. In Luke chapter 24, verse 44, Jesus said this to his disciples. Jesus said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled. Psalm 16 finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ in that he is ultimately the one whose body the Father did not allow to see decay. Instead, God raised Jesus from the dead, and he is even now seated at God's right hand. This is where we're headed with our study this morning, even as we go back to the ancient past. If you've made it to Psalm 16 in your Bible, then you'll likely notice an ascription just before the psalm begins. It says something like, A miktam of David. Now, we don't really know what a miktam is, but uh, the, the prevailing notion among biblical scholars is that it's likely some kind of musical term. And the footnote in your Bible uh, says probably something much like that. The, the term itself means to cover. And given that David is seeking refuge in God, this musical term may be performing double duty. This ascription also tells us that the psalm's author is David. This tells us something about the psalm's place in the flow of redemptive history. As you may know, the Bible is a a wonderful history of God bringing His people into His place and under His loving rule by means of His beloved Son. It started in the Garden, the Garden of Eden, where God placed His people, Adam and Eve, to live in His place under His rule. Adam and Eve rejected God's good rule and so were thrust out of God's glorious garden. The Bible's unfolding history from that point forward is all about God's promise to send a ruler, a king, and a son who will bring God's people back to God's place and live under God's rule. Well, after Adam and Eve, history progresses and we meet Abraham. Through God's covenant with Abraham, we learn that it will be one of his offspring who will bring salvation to the nations. And after Abraham, history progresses and we meet Moses. And we learn that God's great ruler will be a mediator and a righteous keeper of the law of God. And as history progresses yet some more, we meet David, the author of this psalm. 
In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we learn that God's promised ruler and king will be one of David's descendants. That's where we are in the history of redemption when reading Psalm 16. God's people are living in God's place, and they're even living under the rule of God's king, David. But trouble, trouble has emerged for the king. And the psalm opens with a plea for preservation. But it soon pivots from trouble to trust. Does trouble haunt your life? Well, then maybe you can learn from David's trust in God. This is what we have the privilege of considering together this morning as we look at this psalm. How to move from trouble to trust. Please follow along now as I read Psalm 16. A miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. How do we move from trouble to trust? Well, according to Psalm 16, first we pray for preservation. That's what David does there in verses 1 and 2. Second, we delight in God's people. That's what we see in verses 3 and 4. Third, we choose God as our portion, as David says in verses 5 and 6. Fourth, we trust God in the midst of trouble by remembering that He's present, verses 7 to 8. Fifth and finally, we move from trouble to trust by rejoicing in God's power, especially His power over death, which we find in verses 9 to 11. What we'll see is that David's ultimate hope and our ultimate hope in the midst of trouble is found in the same person, Jesus Christ. Let's begin with our first point. Pray for preservation. Pray for preservation. As we do, take a look at verse 1 again. Psalm 16, verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. The psalm opens with David pleading for God to preserve him. Why? On, on what basis could David have such a hope of God coming to his rescue? Well, David is one who takes refuge in God. David belongs to God. He is loved by God and he is appropriately coming to the only one who can preserve him. After all, just two psalms before, in Psalm 14, verse 6, we learn that the Lord is a refuge for his people. Here, David is asking for God to guard him from harm. We don't know what led David to announce this cry. We don't know what he is suffering or what sorrow he is facing. 
But we do know that he has gone to the God who shelters his people in the shadow of his wings. The idea of a refuge here is that of a mighty fortress, high on a mountain with towering walls within which one can flee for safety. This is our God. He is a bulwark, never failing. Do you pray that part of the Lord's prayer that says, deliver us from evil? When you are anxious and afraid, who do you turn to? Who or what do you take refuge in? Do you plead with the Lord? More importantly, do you recognize what David recognized there in verse 2? Verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. David here personally speaks to Yahweh. That's the covenant name of God underneath those capital letters, L-O-R-D. This is the name Yahweh revealed to Moses at the burning bush. The name of the God who rescued his people from Egypt and slavery. The name of the God who was a refuge to his people in the wilderness as they hid themselves under the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. David here claims Yahweh as his ruler, his master, his Lord. Have you, have you personally claimed the one true God as your Lord? Is he your ruler? Or are you following the rule of yourself? Or someone else? Who makes up the rules in your life? Who really is Lord? Here we see that it is possible to have a personal relationship with the God of all creation. We may claim Him as our own because He has claimed us as His own. Here is the King of Israel. He, he has a palace. He has riches. He has might. He has the goods of the land of milk and honey at His disposal. And still, He confesses that He has no good thing apart from God. That is not to say He has nothing good at all. After all, who, who could say that a royal palace and being a king is not very good. He, he could have it all. But if, he, but if he had it all without God, he would have no lasting good. You can have everything this world has to offer, but if you do not have God, you have no lasting good. Perhaps what David is expressing here is what we find in Psalm 73, verse 25, where we read, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. David here is totally and utterly dependent upon God and all that his heart desires is God himself. That sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? What was he satisfied by? In John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said, My food, that which satisfies me and fills me, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. God the Father was enough for Jesus. God was enough for David. Is God enough for you? Is Jesus enough for you? Could you say, like Job, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Can God do what he wants to do in your life? When he does, can you still confess that he is enough? God is the giver of all good. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We would do well, I think, to puzzle over Paul's question in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, where Paul asks, 
What do you have that you did not receive? Christian, what do you have that you have not received from God? Perhaps we ought to consider that last little phrase in verse 2, apart from you. Is it not a hellish torment to be apart from God? Apart from His generous grace and goodness. We should shudder at the words of Jesus in Matthew 25, 41. Jesus told His hearers that one day He would say this to all who reject and rebel against Him. Depart from Me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Depart from Me. Christian, do you realize that you will never hear those words from Jesus? You will never hear, depart from me. So remember you have no good apart from him. Is God the one on whom you depend? Is he the one you desire? Can you live a day without him or apart from him? What about his people? Are they, are they those in whom you delight? Did you know that they are a part of how you move from trouble to trust? Did you know that we need each other? This is the second point. Delight in God's people. Delight in God's people. David says that he delights in God's people in verse 3. Take a look at verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. You see there, David loves God's people. That's who these saints are. They are God's sanctified and set-apart ones. Here's how Moses put it in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Those your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You see, God delights in his people. And David is just reflecting God. David delights in God's people. This is so important for a leader, isn't it? How can a person really lead without love? Love keeps a leader from passivity as it propels him to watch over and guide the steps of his loved ones. Love keeps a leader from being a tyrant as it guards against the use and abuse of those under his love. Their pain is his, for his heart and soul are bound to theirs. This was true of Jesus too. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul said that Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Paul says that Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her. And in John chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And shortly afterward, he went and he laid down his life. Jesus' death shows us his delight in us. When David says, in whom is all my delight, we must remember that we're, we're reading poetry here. If we read this psalm in a, a wooden manner, uh, we would be prone to say that David's all-consuming delight in God contradicts his all-consuming delight in God's people. We know what David is saying, though, don't we? God's people are a good gift from God to David. David loves God, and David loves God's people. The two must come together. What was it the Apostle John said in his letter in 1 John chapter 4, verses 19 and 21? We read this. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother with whom he has seen cannot love God 
whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Are you a liar? Or are you a lover of God's people? You are one or the other. At least that's what John says. He says you can't say you love God while at the same time hating your Christian brother. Do you delight in God's people? Do you delight in in turning up here and meeting with God's people? Do you want to scurry out afterwards because God's people are quite difficult to love? And we really are quite difficult to love sometimes, aren't we? And yet... When we give ourselves to loving one another, there is, in God's mysterious providence, a wonderful satisfaction and joy that we derive from one another. I mean, how many times have you left this place or another believer's home and quietly prayed, Father, thank you for that brother or sister. Thank you for how you have ministered to me through them. I needed their fellowship today. And you were so generous to bring us together. I trust you've prayed something like that many times. Children, youth, young adults, this is one of my prayers for you. It's my prayer that you will love God's people and love to gather with them here. Young people, I pray that you would love this church. We we are full of faults and flaws, but we genuinely want you to grow in the love and grace of God. You learn that in part by being around people who who love God and seek to serve Him. Young people, if you struggle to find joy in coming to church, then pray that God would give you a joy in Him and His people. Pray that this day would be the happiest day of your week and that this place would be the happiest place on earth because you love the people of God and because you're happy in Jesus. David's delight in God's people is then contrasted, you see there in verse 4, against the sorrows of those who are not God's people. Verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Here, David resolves to be a monotheist and remain a monotheist. If, it's, if the, the one true God is his only good, then the one true God will remain his only good. David sees with eyes of faith the wrath that the wicked are storing up for themselves. It will not do to run against God or to run away from God in this life, for one day you shall run into Him. He will put Himself in your path. You cannot escape Him. This is His world. David sees the wrath that comes to wickedness. He wisely considers the end of wickedness. And he resolves to go another way, the way of wisdom. David knows that if the wicked will not be punished in this life, then they will certainly be punished in death. Instead of running after another God, David resolves to run to the one true God. David flatly refuses to participate in the worship of the wicked world. That's what that phrase, their drink offerings of blood, are referring to. David won't swear by or confess the sovereignty of another God. He won't join in their worship. What about you? Do you have other gods? What are our modern day idols? Money? Sexual freedom? 
power, prominence, <coughs> pleasure, ease. Our, our idols are many, but there is only one true God. You know, our, our idols actually disprove themselves each and every day, for they are never satisfied. They're always asking for more, more money, more sex, more power, more ease, more prominence, more pleasure. But the true God is satisfied in himself, and he needs nothing from us. See, idols, they need to feed on us, but the real God feeds us. Idols enslave us, but the true God frees us. Don't give too much space between verses 3 and 4. Recognize that they are connected. You will either worship with God's people or you will worship with those who are not God's people. We must choose a side, for there's no middle ground. David refuses fellowship and worship with the wicked, and so must we. This is what Jesus has done too. You remember in his wilderness temptation, what the devil asked Jesus to do? The devil said, worship me. Luke 4, 8, and Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. See, Jesus was faithful where we have been faithless. Praise God that our Savior did not give in and join in the worship of Satan. Jesus remained faithful for us and for our salvation. We must not only delight in God's people, we must also choose God as our portion, which is our third point. Choose God as your portion. Read verse 5 and 6 again. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. These two verses present an incredible expression of faith. David joyfully chooses God while at the same time entrusting himself to God's choice of providence for him. The language of portion, lot, lines is drawn from the book of Numbers and Joshua where God apportioned out the land for his people, for the people of Israel. And David here is greatly receiving all that God has generously given. Yes, the lines have fallen. The lines have fallen. But we know how God's providence works, don't we? We know that God is in control of all of his creatures and all of their actions and all of his creation. So we know that when David says, the, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, that what David is saying is that God has been good and gracious to him. He's generously given to David. David is content with what God has given him. David is content with how God has dealt providentially with him. Are you content with how God has dealt providentially with you? We are tempted, as we prayed earlier this morning, we are tempted to look around and see how God's providence has fallen on others. We're tempted to look upon the fortunes of others and be envious from time to time. We're tempted toward discontent. Let's remember what we learned from Paul about contentment last week. Remember last week we learned in Philippians chapter 4 that Paul had learned to be content in any and every circumstance. Paul, remember that phrase, he, he learned the secret of being Content of the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And the secret of Paul's contentment was that he trusted and believed that at every moment, God did not merely give him what was good, but God gave him what was best. God has never, nor will he ever give you less than what is best. 
God has dealt with you in the most gentle, gracious, and generous way conceivable. Are you satisfied with what God has given you? Can you say with Paul and with David that not only has God given you what is good, but what is best? David is here gratefully receiving all that God has generously given. And yet he's saying something more. Did you notice that David said, the Lord is my chosen portion. The Lord is my chosen portion. Here is David essentially returning to what he said in verse 2. David has no good apart from God. God has all the good he needs. And David is actually taking what God said to the Levites and claiming it for himself. The Levites, the, the priests in Israel, were to have no inheritance in the promised land. But God said that he would be their inheritance. God was to be the Levites' satisfaction. Listen to Numbers 18.20. And the Lord said to Aaron... You shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. The Levitical priests were to be satisfied by God. He was to be enough. And here David says, I choose you. You are enough for me. Is Jesus enough for you? I wonder if you can see in the psalm so far that David is actually taking refuge in God. He's he's preaching to himself of God's goodness and God's sufficiency. David's preservation up to this point in his life has consisted of God's good provision of himself and his blessings. And so it is good and right that David turns from recounting God's blessings to blessing God. In verses 7 and 8, David remembers that God is present. This is also part of how we move from trouble to trust. We remember that even in the midst of of our trouble, God is with us. We remember God is present. That's our fourth point. Take a look at verses 7 and 8. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. God has been close with counsel and constant in counsel. God's counsel to each of us is is found in His Word. In the wearying night of restless sleep, Yahweh has evoked the words that David has hidden in his heart so that he might be instructed, corrected, and comforted. Brothers and sisters, this is one reason we need to hide God's word in our heart so that we have it when the dark night descends upon our soul. And God can draw out his truth little by little to comfort us. What will lift us up out of the darkness but God and the light he gives us in his word. Verse 8 is how God steadies us, or rather how we steady ourselves. We must always keep our God before us. Too often we live by taking our eyes of faith off of God. Too often we live like practical atheists and forget that the Lord is our Lord. Wasn't that powerfully illustrated when the Apostle Peter got out of the boat And began to walk on the water. He had set the Lord Jesus before him. And he was walking toward him. What what happened when Peter set the water before him? He began to sink. But Jesus would not let him drown. And just as Jesus was near to Peter, we must remember that Jesus is near to us. Just as God was at David's right hand, so Jesus is near to us. Indeed, 
he, his very spirit lives within us. What a, what a privilege it is to set the Lord before us today. Did you, did you realize that that's what we're doing together now? Through our worship, we are setting Christ before our eyes and ears and hearts and minds. How will you set the Lord before you tomorrow? How will you remember his presence? What will you do when the world and the flesh and the evil one conspire to try you and tempt you and trouble you? Will you set God before you by, by opening his word? Will you read it? Will you call out to him to preserve you and preserve your faith? Will you ask him to remind you that he is present and near? David possesses an intimate relationship with God. He delights in God's people, is content in God's provision, and lives in the knowledge that God is ever-present with counsel. Here, here is a blessed life and a life that blesses God. There's only one thing that could threaten and endanger such a life. Only one thing. Do you know what could threaten and endanger this blessed life? It's death. Death calls out to us and says, I'm going to steal you away from God. I'm going to steal you away from the ones in whom you delight. I'm going to steal you away from the pleasures of God's earthly provision. I'm going to steal you away from God's presence and His constant counsel. But it is right here in Psalm 16 that David says, Not so, death. There is one, there is one who will overturn you. And all of your claims to power. I, I will rejoice in God. For he rules over death. And over rules death. Christian, here is where you need to lean in and take in the truth of Psalm 16. Here is where the root of your joy is found. So let's turn then and consider our fifth point. Rejoice in God's power. Read Psalm 16, verses 9 to 11. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David's, David's prayer for preservation, delight in God's people, choosing God as his portion, and remembering God's presence brings him gladness and joy. He dwells secure. Indeed, David feels secure in his whole being. Where he was previously troubled and threatened, now he trusts. And as he trusts, he, he looks to the future. He is not dead yet. And still he looks over death in triumph, saying, verse 10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What is David saying here? He is saying that the God who is his refuge is able to rescue him from death itself. David believes that, that when he dies, there will be life beyond the grave. In Sheol, as uh, an Old Testament reference to the realm of the dead, David is saying that God will not abandon his soul. As verse 11 makes 
plain. David believes that there's life beyond the grave. Indeed, he believes there is life in God's very presence. What is underneath all of this is astounding too. For David is implying that he will live in God's presence. God was at David's right hand, verse 8, and now David is at least implying that he will enjoy the pleasures at God's right hand, verse 11. Do you see that term? God was near to David on earth, and David will be near to God in heaven. How? Only through the one who is the ultimate fulfillment of these verses. That one is the Holy One. Who is that Holy One? In Mark chapter 1, the demons tell us who that Holy One is. Jesus entered the synagogue in Capernaum, and a man with an unclean spirit was there. This is what the demons said in Mark chapter 1, verse 24. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus came to destroy the power of demons. He came to destroy the power of the devil. He came to destroy the power of death. Jesus is the Holy One of Psalm 16.10. The truth is that verse 10 is is not entirely true of David. After all, didn't, didn't David die? And didn't his body see corruption and decay, as some translations put it? David himself confessed this in, in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 2. He, he said uh, that, that he is about to go the way of all the earth. In other words, I'm about to be placed in my tomb and return to the dust of the earth. David died. His body did see corruption, rotting, and decay. But David's hope is clearly set on another While David's body will see corruption and decay, God's Holy One will not see corruption and decay. Roughly a thousand years after David wrote Psalm 16, the Apostle Peter took up this psalm as his sermon text on the day of Pentecost. We read Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 41 earlier in the service, but we need to take a look at them again. So so turn over in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verse 22. If you're using one of the Bibles provided... Uh, You can find it on page 910, 910, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. We're going to begin reading there in verse 22, which I think is on the the bottom of uh, the first column on the page of 910 of the Bibles provided. Acts chapter 2, verse 22, we're going to read to, to about verse 32. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. We know it was that because David wrote Psalm 16 a thousand years earlier. Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible. Don't you love that? It was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. Here's verse 10 of Psalm 16. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. 
You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Do you, do you see what Psalm 16 was really about? It was really about Jesus. And actually, the, the whole psalm was about Jesus. Peter didn't just say verse 10 was about Jesus. He actually started his quote in verse 8 of Psalm 16. And you may not have noticed this, but the speaker is actually the same throughout the whole psalm. Psalm 16 is about Jesus. Prayerful, dependent, delight-filled, righteous life lived on behalf of God's people. It's about Jesus entrusting himself into his Father's hands as he faces death. It is about Jesus knowingly entering into his crosswork for the joy set before him. Hebrews 12, 2. It's about Jesus' confidence that though he will die, yet shall he live. John eleven twenty two. Jesus knew he would get up from the dead. We see him saying this in his ministry over and over and over again. He would say things like this in Mark's gospel. See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and after three days he will rise. Mark 10, 33 and 34. Jesus knew that he would die. And that he would rise. And unless you think Peter's the only apostle to have this idea about Psalm 16, flip forward to, uh, to Acts chapter 13, verse 35. Acts chapter 13, verse 35. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's on page 922. 922. In this chapter, in Acts 13, Paul, uh, he's also preaching. He's trying to persuade his hearers that Jesus has been raised from the dead. He is going about that by showing the scriptures written a thousand years before predicted Jesus' resurrection. Paul is stringing together scripture passage after scripture passage like, like a string of pearls. And in verse 35, he quotes Psalm 16.10. Acts chapter 13, beginning there in verse 35. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he, whom God raised up, did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, and this man only, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Jesus knew that he would return to the Father's right hand. Jesus knew that he would depart this world and go to the Father. He, he actually clued us into this when he prayed for his disciples in John chapter 17, verse 11. Jesus said, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Do you hear what Jesus said in his prayer to the Father? He said, I'm coming to you. 
He said it yet again two verses later in John chapter 17, verse 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Now, now perhaps you're thinking, you know, that, that's great, but what does it have to do with me? Everything. Yes, a thousand-year-old prophecy about Jesus has everything to do with you. Like David, don't you want to know the fullness of joy forevermore? Like David, don't you want God to make known to you the path of life? Friend, it's found in Jesus. Jesus suffered in the place of sinners. He died and was raised for a sinner like David, an adulterer, a liar, and a murderer. That's you and me. Those are our sins. Jesus died on the cross, bearing the punishment due to the sins of his people, but that's not all. Three days after his death on the cross, God raised Jesus from the dead. God raised the perfectly holy one in whom there was no sin. Jesus said this in John chapter uh, 14, verse 19. Because I live, you also will live. Friend, there is eternal life in Jesus. Do you see who the path of life is according to Psalm 16? You've made known to me the path of life. The path of life is Jesus. Let's turn one last time in our Bibles. Turn to John chapter 14. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, I think that's on page 901. John 14. And, and as I prepare to read what Jesus says to his disciples, keep in mind, keep in mind the words of Psalm 16 verse 11, where David said, you make known to me the path of life. And friend, as we read, ask yourself, what is the path of life? Or better yet, who is the path of life? Who does Jesus say is the path of life? Remember, remember Psalm 16 is about moving from trouble to trust. And notice what Jesus says right here as the chapter begins there in verse 1 of John 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way, you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then the Lord has this day made known to you the path of life. No one gets to the eternal pleasures of God except through Jesus. Jesus is the path of life. So entrust yourself to him. Take refuge in him. Make Jesus your portion and cup. Repent of your sins and your false worship and turn to the worship of the one who suffered for sinners, who endured the wrath of God and was raised from the grave on the third day so that though you may die, yet will you live. Live with him. Give your life to the one who gave his life for you. Christian, 
Brothers and sisters, as we conclude, we need to think through a few, well, really many applications, points of application for our lives from Psalm 16. Psalm 16, it, it teaches us that in the midst of our trouble, we can trust God. For he has raised Jesus from the dead. See, Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 and 21, we read, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Christian, you will get up from the dead. There's one Puritan minister who said, you are, you are more likely to get up from the dead than you are to get up from your bed. You will get up from the dead. Death no longer hovers over and haunts the people of God. For in the words of the old catechism, the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves until the resurrection. Because you are going to get up from the dead. Death no longer hovers over and haunts the people of God. Instead, death becomes a servant on our path to life in Jesus eternal. In the words of the heavenly Dr. Sibbs, Death is only a grim porter to let us into a stately palace. What does the fact of Jesus' resurrection mean for you today and tomorrow? And however many days the Lord gives you on this earth, it means that we persevere through the trials and temptations of this life by praying and taking refuge in God. Brothers and sisters, each and every day, pray, preserve me, O God. For in you, I take refuge. Psalm 16 tells us that he will answer that prayer. Jesus will not let one of God's children be lost. The good shepherd cannot lose a single sheep. So pray this prayer. Be honest with God. Prone to wander. Lord, I, I feel it. Prone, prone to leave the God I love. So Take my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. He will answer that petition. Psalm 16 teaches us that each and every day we should delight in God's people. Give yourself to loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. Fill your week not only with your physical family, but also with your spiritual family. And really treat them like family. We will do anything for family, won't we? Uh, we will get up in the middle of the night and we will meet them at the hospital. We will leave work and we will run to and rescue them. We will give them aid. We will do a great many things for family. This should be your posture toward your church family too. If there is a need, you need to meet it. We should delight in God's people, binding our hearts to them as God has bound us all to Jesus. Psalm 16 teaches us that each and every day we should make God our portion. We should thank Him for His blessings and we should bless Him for His loving kindness, faithfulness, and patience with us, His errant children. He has chosen you. 
So Christian, choose him each and every day. Prefer him above all others. Set the Lord always before you. Psalm 16 teaches us that each and every day we should remember God is present. He is God with us. The Lord is at hand. He is near. And finally, Psalm 16 teaches us each and every day we should rejoice in God's power. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, death has been swallowed up in victory. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, fullness of joy has been secured for the believer. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, access into God's presence has been granted to every believer. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, pleasures forevermore have been pledged. When we enter into glory, we will receive pleasure upon pleasure upon pleasure forever and ever and ever. So Christian, rejoice. Rejoice this day and every day. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the weight of our sorrows in our earthly days will soon be replaced by an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Praise God. Let's pray together.